All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're thankful for your word that is illuminates our thinking, that on the basis of the light that it shines upon our, our souls and upon our minds, that we are able to accurately understand who you are, who we are, and to understand your creation and all that we experience in life. For it is your word that gives us the tools to understand what is going on. Father, we pray that as we continue to study about our Lord's uh, death on the cross, what was accomplished there, that you might open our minds to the uh, profound accomplishments that were finished there, that uh, laid the foundation for our uh, salvation. And Father, we pray that as we study these things, that we will be humbled to realize how much you have done for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are continuing our study in Matthew. For those who are here visiting today, we have gone through the Gospel of Matthew verse by verse, and we have come to that period towards the end, which is really the largest section in Matthew, which focuses on the death of Christ. We have gone through his uh agony in Gethsemane, the struggle there. We have gone through his arrest. We have gone through the six trials that he experienced. And then starting with the conclusion of those trials, we have been walking our way step by step through what will be approximately 33 different stages of the crucifixion from the conclusion of the trial to the sealing of the tomb, all in preparation that will come pretty close to having Jesus rise from the dead on Easter Sunday. I don't know if that will happen. If so, it will be the first time I've had a series that actually landed on Christmas or Easter with the appropriate event. But we're close. And I paused after the 25th stage to talk about what Jesus accomplished on the cross, not, not by his physical death, but by his spiritual death. Now, for some people, that's a new concept because often uh, these are not distinguished. But spiritual death means separation from God. When Adam and Eve were created, they had perfect fellowship, perfect harmony with God. The instant they sinned, something happened. God had warned them that the instant you sin, you will certainly die. They died. They didn't die physically. That didn't happen for over 900 years, but they died spiritually. We know that 
because when God came, as was his daily habit, to walk with them in the garden, they heard the sound of God in the garden, and the scripture says they were afraid and they ran and hid. That had never happened before, so that's a consequence of their disobedience. They're now spiritually dead. They're separated from God. He is no longer um, the manifestation of love, but fear. And so this then shows that they've died spiritually. The physical death and all of the other horrible things that we experience in life and the corruption of living in a fallen world are the consequences of the spiritual death of Adam and Eve, images, image bearers of God in uh, this creation. They were to be representatives of God. Now, we're all still in the image of God, but it's a corrupt image because, because of sin. So when Christ goes to the cross, he has to pay the legal penalty for sin. The legal penalty for sin was spiritual death, not physical death. That's a consequence. So between 12 noon and 3 p.m., Jesus Christ is on the cross. God shrouds the area in deep darkness so that no one can watch what happens. And at the end, Jesus recites Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? During those three hours, God the Father is separated from the Son, not in terms of his being. The Trinity can never be broken, but legally, because Christ has been made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin was made sin for us. So he is legally separated from the Father, but at the end... To make sure we understand what happened, John, in his gospel, says, when it was tetelestai, when it was finished. This word tetelestai is an important word. It's in the perfect tense in Greek, which means it's talking about something that's already been finished in the past. So Jesus is no longer working on that which provides salvation. It has been completed. Second thing we noted about that is it's a financial word. It is a word that was put at the bottom of a bill. When the bill was paid, tetelestai meant paid in full. That is, there's a financial legal transaction on the cross where our debt is paid. Now, I'm using that specific terminology because that's the background for our passage this morning in Colossians 2, 12 through 14. The debt was paid, not potentially, but actually. That debt is actually paid. So that sin, as we'll see, is no longer the issue. The issue is faith in Christ. So so at the conclusion, not only does John say when it was to Telestai, Jesus said to Telestai. Now whenever the Holy Spirit repeats anything in that closely with the same verbiage, all of our antennae ought to be wagging around and wiggling because something important is going on that the Holy Spirit wants us to pay attention to. Twice he makes it clear that what Christ did on the cross has been completed and he hasn't died physically yet. And then he gave up his spirit. Then he died physically. And we covered all of that. But what we're looking at is what he accomplished for our salvation. So we stopped and we're taking a little interlude from our study. And we're looking at these five things. First of all, that what he did on the cross was substitutionary. He died in our place. He died as our substitute. Second, it was 
to accomplish redemption. That means it paid a price. Third, it canceled something. That's what tetelestai is all about. It's paid in full, and therefore the debt's canceled. It provided, fourth, it provided forgiveness. And fifth, satisfaction to God's character, to his justice and his righteousness. So we look at what the Bible teaches about spiritual, uh, I mean, about substitutionary atonement. And we saw that this is emphasized in passages such as 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. The language there in the Greek uses a preposition indicating substitution. He died in our place. That's the transaction. The Old Testament pictures this through the sacrificial system where an individual is going to put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, as in Leviticus 1.4, and recites his sins so that his sins are transferred to the animal that is to be sacrificed. And on that basis, he makes atonement, a word there that means to be cleansed, purified from sin. So that's the picture that we have. We have this picture of substitution. And what I want to show you as we go through this is that the Old Testament gives us visual images and and uh, object lessons of the doctrines that are explicated in the New Testament. So here we have this picture of the sacrifice of substitution uh, through the placing on the hand on the sacrificial lamb. As I pointed out, too, that I need to continuously remind us of, there are three things that are problems that every human being has. The first is that there's this judicial penalty that has been assigned to us because of Adam's original sin. We are under the legal penalty of spiritual death. To be able to spend time with God, to have fellowship with God, that legal penalty has to be paid. It could not be paid uh, uh, by any of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. The second problem is as a result of that legal penalty, every human being, until the end of the millennial kingdom, is born spiritually dead. That's an experiential problem. The first is a legal problem. The third problem is that we're born with a lack of righteousness. We have we do good deeds, we have morality, but we do not measure up to the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now, what happens in God's solution is that the judicial penalty is paid for at the cross. That is substitutionary redemption. Christ dies in our place. He pays the bill for us. It's like if I were to take you out to dinner and uh, you got up, you had your intention was you were going to pay for it yourself. You got up, though. You had to go to the restroom. When you came back, I paid the bill. There's nothing more you can do. It's paid in full. You can't do anything. You can't even pay the tip. It's taken care of. That's what Christ did on the cross. We can't add anything to it. It's paid in full. But that doesn't change the fact that we're born spiritually dead and we don't have righteousness. So we have that problem. By believing in Christ, we get new life. That's what John 3 is all about, that by believing in Christ, we get eternal life. He who believes on him is not condemned, John 3.18 says, but he who believeth not is condemned already because of his nasty sins. Is that what it says? No, 
Because the sins are paid for. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is that belief that gives us new life, but it also does something else that solves the third problem, which is the lack of righteousness. And at the instant we believe in Christ, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. Why? That the righteousness of God might be found in us. So when we trust in Christ, he solves those two experiential problems of spiritual death and unrighteousness. So that's substitution. Now, what the second thing we looked at was what the Bible teaches about redemption. This was last Sunday morning. The key verse here is 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and spot. You see what happens in that first illustration, we have a lamb. The picture there is placing the hand on the lamb. That's the picture of substitution. The death of the lamb is the picture of redemption. That's the payment of a price. Okay, so substitution, Christ takes our place. Redemption, he pays our price, pays the price for us. So the key word is payment of a price. This is the same thing that was seen in the Old Testament picture at, at the Exodus that God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Christ redeemed us from slavery to sin. So then, my sixth point last week was that redemption then is the basis for the cancellation of our sins. The word used sometimes in the Old Testament and in the, I mean in the New Testament, in the Old King James, and sometimes in in uh, theology is expiation. Not a user-friendly word today. But if you understand it, that's what it means, is that a debt is canceled. And that's our passage today is Colossians 2, 13 and 14, where we will look at the third and fourth accomplishments of Christ on the cross, the cancellation of the debt, which brings forgiveness of sin. Okay, at a, at a level toward God, not toward us. Okay, that's where people get all confused. People get, really don't understand forgiveness. They don't understand forgiveness in terms of this first category that God can forgive us and cancel the debt without saving us. They get all confused. They say, well, if you cancel the debt, then that means we're all going to get saved, right? No. No, because you have to believe in Christ to have the, what? to have the spiritual uh, spiritual death problem solved and to have the uh, lack of righteousness problem solved that has to that comes through faith alone so there's a forgiveness that is positional and legal uh, excuse me that is legal toward god there are three other kinds of forgiveness in the bible and we have a lot of problem with forgiveness because we think we really have to hold people's feet to the fire that's not our job that's God's job. And God understands the issues a whole lot better than we do. So what we're looking at today is what the Bible teaches about the cancellation of sin and forgiveness. Now, this passage that we're looking at in Colossians chapter 2, specifically verses 
uh, uh, 13 and 14, I think that is one of the most significant and important passages that I've run across to help us understand that transaction on the cross. And it, it's it's a long section. Actually, it begins in verse 12, this, the, the, uh, uh, the, the passage does, and Paul, as his, his uh, common uh, style, is complicated. He piles phrase upon phrase. We've all gone through this, or most of us have gone through this before, but it's a good reminder for us as to what has happened what has happened here. A famous Anglican scholar, Greek scholar, by who wrote under his initials, C.F.D. Moore, uh, wrote quite a bit on the New Testament. He was known by his friends as Charlie. His full name was Charles Francis Digby Moore. He was born to missionary parents in Shanghai, and he uh, wrote a number of commentaries. He was given various awards by the British Empire. He was made a commander of the British Empire, which is an order of chivalry for the military and uh, civilians. He was also made a fellow of the British Academy. He was an Anglican priest and a theologian, and he has great insights into the Greek text. He wrote concerning this section from Colossians 2.4 to Colossians 3.4 that this section contains one of the most important of St. Paul's descriptions of what is achieved by the death of Christ and one of his most emphatic reiterations of the theme of the incorporations of believers that should be in Christ. I moved the picture this morning, and it covered the last word. All right, the key verse for understanding this cancellation of forgiveness that ties it together with what we studied last time is redemption is in Colossians 1.14 and the parallel in Ephesians 1.7. Colossians 1.14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And in Ephesians, Paul wrote it this way, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now in both of those passages, he's talking about what we as believers have, but we have a forgiveness that, there is a forgiveness that precedes that positional forgiveness that we have in Christ. But it's connected to forgiveness. All of these different facets of what Christ did on the cross are interconnected and interdependent so that redemption is the payment of the price. You go to a restaurant, you get the bill, you pay the bill. That's redemption. The canceling of the debt, which flows from that, is the expiation and that cancellation or eradication is also described as forgiveness, the forgiveness of a debt. You probably heard that phrase before. That's what we're going to see. And so this ties re- substitution and redemption now to cancellation, an economic term. Now, Paul begins this verse by saying, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, 
I want you to notice something there. In English, we have these words that end with ing. Okay, grammatically, that can be a participle or it can be a gerund. This is a participle. You know that from the, what, what the Greek says. But what does that mean, being dead? What's the action there? Or having forgiven. See, this is translated, according to Dr. Robert Thomas, who taught hermeneutics for, and, and Greek for many years at the Master's Seminary, this is translated with the same level of ambiguity that you have in the original Greek. For Thomas, that's a good thing, because Thomas thinks that these translations that that try to be more specific and override the ambiguity are making an interpretation, and it's not the role of the translator to make an interpretation. It's the role of the pastor in the pulpit to make the interpretation and to explain the ambiguity. Because all languages have ambiguities, and that's just the nature of the language. But if you look at the whole context, you can figure out what it actually means. And so what this means as we look at this, and if you were to be were to look at the Greek grammar, it is talking about the condition that we're in at the time that we're saved. Okay? And by looking at the context, by looking at parallel passages such as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, we can see that. This first phrase is important. It's uh, being dead. It's a participle, we know in the Greek. And it simply means to, it's talking about your existence. And what is your existence at the time? The main verb here is going to be he's made alive. So participles, like, like this, this is adverbial, it tells you something about what's going on in connection to the main verb. So it's talking about your condition at the time that you're made alive. And so it modifies that, and as a present participle, the action of that, ver- that participle being dead is seen as being at the same time as the action of the main verb. So at the time you're made alive, you're spiritually dead. That's all that it's, all that it's saying. And it's temporal, though. It should be translated, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. At the time that you were in, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Although it could be concessive, because that's the ambiguity here. They can have slightly different nuances. Though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it's still saying the same thing that, that basically you're spiritually dead and you're incapable of having spiritual life or a relationship with God. We were dead, but not physically. We were dead spiritually. We were separated from God. This is the same thing that is said, in, for example, in Ephesians 2.5, even though we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. This is the main verb, to be given life. That's what Jesus said. He came to give life, that's salvation, John 10.10, and to give it abundantly. That's the spiritual life. That's the result of spiritual growth. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 says that though, though we were dead in our trespasses and sins, or when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
just that remarkable what we have in Christ. He's developed that fully in Ephesians, which we'll go to after I finish Matthew, but it is developed as a parallel in Colossians 2.13. So the question we then ask is that he's made us alive together with him, having forgiven you all all trespasses. So what's the relationship between forgiveness and being made alive? See, what most of us read when we read through this is that we are spiritually dead, we believe in Jesus, we're made alive in him, and then forgiven of sins. And if you think that, you're wrong. Because that's not what the grammar in the Greek indicates at all. The grammar in the Greek tells us even more about God's grace and what happens at, at the cross. So, Colossians 2.13 says that we were made alive together with him having forgiven you. But that translation doesn't tell you about when that forgiveness occurred. The word there that is used is the word charizomai from the word charis, the word for grace in Greek. So it's talking about a gracious action. And it often means forgiveness. In some passages, as I'll show you later, it refers to the forgiveness of a financial debt. That's the imagery of even aphiemi, which is the other Greek word for forgiveness. So it's an adverbial participle, so you have to go through about ten different types to see which makes sense. And what makes sense here is that it's causal, that it is because he had forgiven us of trespasses. And that makes sense because, you see, what we have here is a an aorist tense. Now, this I know this gets into the weeds grammatically, but this is so important because the main verb is an aorist, and when you have an aorist participle, that means the action of the participle, that is the forgiveness, comes before the action of the main verb, which is to be made alive. Now, isn't that interesting? That is saying just grammatically, Christ, you were forgiven before you were made alive. Now, we're going to have to say, now, when did that happen? Did that happen just a few minutes before? Is this some kind of hyper-Calvinist thing that God just, boom, zaps us because we're elect and then makes us alive, and before that he had already done everything? No, that's not what's going on here at all. Now, the word has three meanings, to give freely or graciously, so it's always emphasizing the grace aspect of what's happening, in this case, the grace aspect of forgiveness. It means to cancel a sum of money or a debt that is owed. That's in Luke 7.42. So it's that idea of canceling a debt, and the debt, of course, is the penalty of sin. And third, it means to forgive or pardon an action. Okay? So when we look at this in its totality, I don't know why I have this slide up here twice. Let me run through it real fast. It means because he had already forgiven. So it reads like this. When you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh as a spiritually dead unbeliever, he has made you alive together with him because he had already forgiven you of your sins. That's the thrust of it. Total forgiveness. How did that happen? 
That's what the rest of the next verse is going to tell us. It's emphasizing this idea, cause or maybe time after he had, but I think it's cause that makes more sense. So what we see here is that Scripture has four categories of forgiveness, and this is the first category. It's a forgiveness that is directed toward God, where the justice of God cancels the debt of sin. It's for all mankind without distinction, without exception. Every human being has that debt canceled. The legal penalty is paid by Christ. Now, when we think about these categories of forgiveness, that's the first category, and I call it forensic forgiveness because it has to do with the justice of God. If you watch CSI or NCIS or any of those crime dramas or anything, they're always talking about forensic science and everything. It has to do with science that is related to justice in the courtroom. So that's what this is related to. God's justice is is going to cancel that sin. That relates to that fourth or fifth work of the cross, which is satisfaction or propitiation we'll get to next time. The second area of forgiveness is what happens experientially at the moment we trust in Christ. But that can happen to us experientially only because at the cross, the debt's paid. Now, just to give you a preview, if you read into the rest of the statement that comes up in verse uh, 14, the last line reads, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now, when did he nail it to the cross? Well, he's on the cross in A.D. 33. So this forgiveness that we're talking about can't be something that happens experientially when we believe because this certificate of debt is nailed to the cross when Christ died. That's when he eradicated that debt. Isn't that glorious? That every single human being has had that legal penalty canceled at the cross. So they don't have to do something for it. There's so many people who, when they evangelize, say, you've got to deal with all your sins. No, you don't. Jesus already did it. I don't want to hear about your sins. I don't want you to go uh, get involved in a huge pity party and try to demonstrate your remorse over all those sins that you had so much fun committing before uh, and be a hypocrite. It's over with. They're paid for. The legal penalty, it's not about your sins It's not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about what Christ did on the cross. Now, the instant we do do believe in Jesus, then we're forgiven positionally. We're placed in Christ. Those are those two verses I talked about initially, Colossians 1.14 and Ephesians 1.7. We're forgiven positionally in Christ. We are in him, so we always have that status now of being forgiven in him. But when we sin, as I explained earlier, we're no longer walking in the light as he is in the light. We're walking in darkness experientially. We're walking by the sin nature. So we are to confess our sin, and we realize forgiveness. Let me give you an illustration. You're born into a wonderful family. Your parents love you. They provide you with everything that you could possibly imagine. But there are times when that harmony you have in this wonderful family is broken because you do something stupid. You're disobedient to your parents, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, you know, there's just it's just not the way it was. And so you have to 
something happens. Sometimes you're punished, but sometimes you just have to admit that you were wrong. And then once that happens, that rapport, that harmony is restored and recovered. When you sin, it, that, that, and you're positionally you're forgiven because your, your folks love you. They're just waiting for you to say, I'm sorry, I, I, I sinned. Now, when we confess sin, that doesn't mean we apologize for it because God knows it. You know, you know, I always say this. When you get arrogant and you, you, all of a sudden you realize how arrogant you've been, maybe when you're 12 or 13, you just feel terrible about it. But God doesn't care how you feel because you come to him, oh, God, I'm never going to do that again. I just feel so bad. Please don't punish me. And God says, well, you've already done this 8,932 times, and you're going to do it another 59,732 times before you die. So I'm not impressed with your protestations that you'll never do it again. Okay? It's paid for. It's not the issue. I want you just to admit that you've sinned and what it is, and I'll instantly forgive you. And cleanse you of all unrighteousness, not just the one sin you just committed, but all the other ones that either you don't want to admit yet are sins or that uh, you forgot about or you don't know their sins. I'm going to cleanse you from those too. That's grace. And that's not a license to sin. That is the freedom to recover so you can keep growing. You, now, every baby is going to use that for a license for sin. You know that. It's just like, now nobody knows this but you and me, but when you were eight or nine years old and your parents thought, well, you're grown up, you can stay home by yourself for a little while. And while they were gone, you raided the cookie jar, whatever. You did whatever you thought you could get away with that if your parents were there, you wouldn't get away with. That's because a characteristic of immaturity is to use freedom for a license. We all do that, but we grow through it, hopefully. And as you mature, you begin to realize that freedom is an opportunity to excel. It's not the license to fail. So we have experiential forgiveness when we confess sin. And then uh, fourth, there's relational forgiveness. We are to forgive one another as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. That's the pattern. So those are the four areas of forgiveness. Now, back to the words for forgiveness, there's these two basic words that are used in the New Testament. The first one is afiemi, or the noun form aphasis, which means to let go, to cancel something, to remit. You've heard that the, in the King James it would translate uh, repent for the remission of sins. Same word, just repent for the forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness is, is a more user-friendly word today. Uh, but it means that to cancel, to remit, to leave, to forgive. The noun has the same range of meanings, to release, to pardon, to cancel, uh, to give forgiveness. And it emphasizes the act of forgiveness. The second word is charizomai, which means basically to show favor or kindness, because the act of forgiving is an act of grace. It's an act of kindness. It's to be gracious to somebody. It's to cancel out a debt, which means it's over and done with and forgotten. So it emphasizes that attitude of forgiveness, that it is gracious. It's maybe undeserved. It's unmerited. You know, that dirty so-and-so still doesn't deserve it. They're going to do it again. That's when Jesus 
answered Peter when Peter said, well, how many times do I forgive this lousy person? Nine times, seven times? And Jesus said, no, 70 times seven. In other words, you never stop forgiving them, just as he never stops forgiving you. I don't want to show of hands, but how many people have been angry more than 490 times in their life? How many have lied more than 490 times in their life? That's 70 times 7. How many have committed who knows how many mental attitude sins over 490 times? And God still forgives you, doesn't he? That's what the idiom means. It goes on and on and on. So, Matthew 26, 28, Jesus is... um, Establishing the Lord's table, he says of the cup, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the forgiveness or remission of sin. That's that word. Hebrews 9.22 says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, that is without death. That's what shedding of blood, it's an idiomatic phrase for death. There is no uh, remission of sin. In Luke 7.42, when the woman washed Jesus' feet and Simon the Pharisee's, Pharisee objected, Jesus gave a parable about forgiveness of a large monetary debt to teach forgiveness. He uses this word. It's the cancellation of a debt. Both words, charizomai and afiemi, are used to refer to a cancellation of a debt. So... When we correct that translation, we see this important phrase, because he had already forgiven us, he made us alive together with him because he already forgave us from all our transgressions. And in verse 14, by or when, it's another participle. You've got to figure out what the main meaning is. It's temporal, I think, when he canceled out the certificate of debt. That's when he did the forgiving, when he canceled the certificate of debt. And we know when he did that, because when we get to the last phrase, it's going to tell us it happened at the cross. So this phrase, to cancel, is really interesting. It means to wipe out something, to blot it out, to erase it, to eradicate it, to remove it as if it never existed before. And that's God's grace. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It's totally over with. He's not going to bring it back up and say, oh, man, you're doing this again. You know, why don't you just quit? And and that, but that's how we're, oh, Lord, I'm doing it again. I'm going to beat myself up just a little bit more. And that's what we do because people don't really believe God forgives them. And that's the whole point is God forgives you. It's final. It's over with. It's eradicated. Get over it. It's not about you. It's about him. In the Old Testament, the comparable word is this word maha, which means to wipe or wipe out something. For example, in Psalm 51, 9, when David is confessing his sin, his sin of adultery with Bathsheba, his sin of conspiracy to have her husband Uriah the Hittite murdered, and his conspiracy to cover it all up, he prays to God. He says, hide your face from my sins. That's a picturesque word for saying, you know, close your eyes, forget it. It's over with. I've confessed it, which he's already done in the passage. And he says, and blot out, wipe out all my iniquities. And in Isaiah forty-three twenty-five, this word is used. God is speaking. He said, I, even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 
So what do we do? We remember them again, and we go over it again and again, because that's just a denial of God's grace, and then you have to confess that as a sin. It's it's like, you know, people used to chain smoke. You just light one cigarette off of another cigarette, and you just keep going, and it gets worse and worse and worse as you go along. That's what they do with chain sinning. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry. And then 50 minutes later, you remember, and you're embarrassed you did it. You go, Lord, you know, you just confess it again because you don't believe he actually forgave you the first time. Problem is you don't believe God and you don't want to forgive yourself. And what people have to do is learn to forgive themselves. And this is a major problem in our culture. We have a lot of people, maybe some of you, who grew up in circumstances where there was physical abuse, where there was sexual abuse, where who knows what. Maybe it happened later in life. And you blame yourself. Typical problem of victims is they blame themselves and try to take ownership for whatever happened to them. But God says, A, you, you didn't do anything to cause that to happen to you. And B, no matter what part you may have played in it, once you confess it, it's over with. And you're cleansed and forgiven, and now you have to believe and live as if you're cleansed and forgiven, because you are. And you just put that behind you, and God has put that behind you. Peter uses the Greek phrase here uh, in Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Okay, it's forgiveness. It's wiping it out. In the Greek, it's the same word there that's used in Colossians 2, 14, that word ex alepho. Alepho is a word for anointing. Anointing is when you take oil and you rub it on something. You can anoint a wound. You can anoint your head. You rub something on it. Ex means out of, so it's to rub it out, so it's no longer, no longer there. This word is used in another passage. And that passage is in Revelation, that when we are in heaven, that there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, for the old things are wiped out. Same word. So that gives you that visual picture of just rubbing it out and removing it. Okay, Colossians 2.14 tells us that this happened when he canceled the certificate of debt, which is a hand, like a handwritten document. It's an indictment against someone, against a criminal. That was consistent of decrees. Now, this word is the word dogma. We get that into English with a slightly different sense. But it's a, a written document or a proposition or a legal document that in this legal type of context, it would be the... Uh, the formal indictment of somebody, which is your your sin, and so that's that's what we see here is this certificate of debt is the sin for which we are condemned. Let me get there. We go. It's a written decree against us in opposition to us, and in this context, it's referring to uh, to the Gentiles. So. What happens then? He canceled this debt out, and then it says, and he has taken it out of the way. This is the word iro. That's the same word used of Jesus rising from the dead. It, it's removed. It's carried away. And so that, that debt is totally, is not only blotted out, it, it is removed. It is taken completely out of the way. And in the Greek, it's in the perfect tense, meaning it's completed action. 
before you were made alive together with Christ, sometime in the distant past, when it was nailed to the cross, it was eradicated and it was taken out of the way. That's what that perfect tense means. It's something that happened in the past with and was completed in the past, not when you believed, but when Christ did it. It's the objective payment of the price on the cross. And it happened when he nailed it to the cross. So what's the conclusion? First of all, sin is not the issue at salvation. Because the sin's paid for. It's canceled, eradicated, taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. The individual sin is not the issue. The issue is something else. It's belief in Christ. So the second point is this does not mean that sin or the sin penalty and the reality of a person's spiritual death is ignored. So when you're talking to somebody, it's not that you never mention sin, but you don't make an issue out of their sin. But a person has to realize that because of sin, they're spiritually dead. Because of sin, they're under the condemnation of death. Because of sin, they're not going to have eternal life. But you're not making an issue out of their sin and making them feel all guilty about it. Third point, because the focal point is grace. God has eradicated it. God's provided for it. Are you willing to accept that gift? Are you willing to believe in Christ? Because that's the issue. Over 96 times in the Gospel of John, John uses the word believe. He doesn't ever say, invite Jesus into your heart. He never says, invite Jesus into your life. He says, believe again and again and again. Why are they condemned? Because they did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. He didn't say because they did not sincerely believe. Because if you believe something, it's sincere. You may believe it for five seconds and then not believe it anymore, but you believed for those five seconds, and that seals the deal. Because you're once saved, always saved. That's it. It's grace. It's not about you. It's all about Jesus. Point four, the point of application beyond the gospel is that if Jesus paid it all on the cross, then he solved our greatest problem, and therefore he is capable, he is sufficient to solve any other problems you have in life. That's it. That's the sufficiency of the cross, the sufficiency of grace, and the sufficiency of the word. If Jesus could solve your greatest problem, then there's no problem you face in life. It may impact you more personally, profoundly, experientially at some point. You may feel a lot worse about it. But Jesus is still omnipotent. He still solved your greatest problem, which is spiritual death and separation from God. And if you can trust him to do that, then you ought to trust him for all the other stuff that you're not willing to trust him for. Because he is able to solve any problem. God plus one is a majority. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things today and to be reminded of your love for us, what you provided for us at the cross, that you provided a substitute who redeemed us, who canceled our certificate of debt and forgave us. Father, that is just more than we can possibly understand. And this is our message to the lost, is that we are to believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sin. Because He forgave. we are forgiven at the cross, the debt is paid. Now the issue is, 
What do you think about Jesus? Father, we pray that anyone here or anyone listening online or to these recordings, that if they have never trusted in Jesus for salvation, trusted in Jesus alone for salvation, then they will do that, that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to them that this is the issue. As, As Paul replied to the Philippian jailer, When he asked, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He didn't add anything to belief. It was simply to accept that gift to receive Jesus Christ as Savior means to believe in him. And the instant we do so, we have, we're born again, we have eternal life, and we have eternal, your eternal righteousness. And we pray for all of us that we would be reminded As Paul said, that we have been bought with a price, therefore we are not our own, and we are to live our lives to the glory of God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.